This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Um, we are also learning tonight Le'ilu Nishmat Sarah Bat Mordechai, and as well for Le'ilu Nishmat for Avraham Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yecheskel Ben Avraham. There was actually also a refuah to Tzvi Yosef Ben Estel. And obviously, like um, like Michael mentioned earlier, for the entire class, all our needs of should have a speedy, speedy recovery. Okay, so now, so tonight we're going to be dealing with uh, a topic that's apropos now, but generally it's apropos throughout a period, throughout the person's life, depending on the life. The the idea is when you're dealing with difficulties in life, you the the way that you deal with those difficulties, it could either make you or break you, and it depends on how you deal with it. So the discussion tonight, Be'ezat Hashem, is going to be a discussion on, uh, you know, focusing on the loss of life, but it could really be applied to any loss. It could be applied to panasar, it could be applied, you know, to, to uh, you know, marriage or single, or getting gay, with all problems in, in itself could be applied to it, but the focus is going to be on, on the loss of life. When <clears throat> You know, during this period of time, many people are in a period of mourning. And I was speaking to a friend of mine, and he was saying, like, this is not just regular people that are passing away during this time. These are, like, huge righteous people. They have, and, and when you go and you, and you learn about them and you hear about them and you speak about them, I don't know what, to what extent all the, you know, goes on the news, but there's a lot that doesn't go on the, you know, the news in the Jewish news world, that you have a lot of people that did so much good for the Jewish nation, either big rabbis or big balachasid giving tremendous amount of money to charity, starting organizations, and it's crazy how how the the Malachamavet, the 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 angel of death is like picking out all the good ones, and this is a question that people often ask: is why does God take the good ones? There's so many other people that they could have gone, and I, God forbid, I'm not saying that this one is more worthy than that. But when you look at the whole picture, and you look at somebody so amazing, and you look at somebody else, and be like, how is it that God took this one and? Not somebody else, for that matter. The other thing that we want to discuss tonight is how does the Torah deal with death? What, what is the Torah view of death? Additionally, there's another two topics that I want to squeeze in for tonight, and that is what about the family and the friends that go through this hardship? Many of them ask, why do I have to go through these tests and difficulties? I have friends that, you know, Baruch Hashem, that didn't have to go through these tests and difficulties. So why is it that I have to? And finally, the final part is the negligence aspect of it. And this is an aspect that I want to start with. And that is, you know, when when uh, uh, when you're dealing with these situations, because uh, this situation is a very extreme situation, people always think like, okay, what about if maybe he wouldn't have gone to this and party, then nothing would have happened. If he wouldn't have gone to synagogue, then this wouldn't have happened. If he would have gone to a different hospital, maybe he wouldn't have died. If he would have, if he would have gone to the hospital, maybe he wouldn't. There's so many what ifs, and people often beat themselves up. And this could be a part of like maybe I was negligent in the aspect of you know what I should have, shouldn't, or shouldn't have done. So I want to share with you something from the Kalav Rebbe. The Kalav Rebbe goes and says like this. He says that everything is preordained by heavenly decree. Yes, we do have free will, and we could be, bear some guilt for negligence that can cause a death, but, and, and those people, if they cause a death through negligence, they unfortunately will be judged for that. But, despite our negligence, 
the death of this person was predestined from from heaven. It has nothing to do, and if not for this negligence, it would have occurred, or this person would have died in a different manner. And many times, people are saying, okay, you know, it's coronavirus that killed this person. Coronavirus was the method that this person passed away, but if not for coronavirus, it was this person's time, and it would have been something else. And it, it's very difficult when we go, and when we bear difficulties that we really shouldn't be bearing on ourselves. In 1920s, there was a famous incident, um, uh, unfortunately, that happened in uh, in Israel. It and what happened was in the you know to give you a little bit of a precursor on this particular uh, situation. In the early 1920s, there were, the yeshivas in Jerusalem were financially going through difficult times. So the rabbis went and they decided they're going to send by a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Balk to go and try to. He was a very dynamic speaker to try to raise funds for the the, the yeshivas in uh, in in Jerusalem. So he goes and he travels from place to place, gives his speeches, very dynamic, very inspirational, and then people go and donate to the, to the institutions. One time he was in Chicago, and in Chicago he delivered this powerful, inspiring speech, and one person came up to him afterwards by the name of Yerachmiel Wexler. And this, you know, Mr. Wexler was very moved by this rabbi's speech, and he decided that he was contemplating he was going to move to Israel to open up a business so he could support the Jewish people of Jerusalem and of the area. So, Yerachmiel went and he traveled to Israel. This is in the early 1920s. He traveled to Israel with his son, Yechaskel. And they went, and the first stop was in the famous Hebron Yeshiva. This, this yeshiva that was of a high-level learning. And they saw there are many Americans that are sitting there and they're learning over there. And they were so inspired. You know, Yerachmiel Wexler was so, the father was so inspired. He decided that his son, Yechaskel, should remain over there in the, in the, in the yeshiva to go and learn. Now, during the winter, and he was there during the winter of 1928 to 1929, six months after he arrived in the, in the yeshiva, the local Arabs penetrated, perpetrated this, this deathly uh, massacre of the Jewish people in Hebron. And in there, 67 Jewish souls were taken. And Yechaskel Wexler was one of the victims. And when the family heard this, the news, they were so broken. They were so, like, you know, they couldn't even see their son. It was so far away. During that time, there was no, the air travel wasn't like there is today. It wasn't even, there wasn't any, any air travel. So they went and the family sat shiva in, uh, you know, in Chicago. The next, you know, some time goes by and the, the, the yeshivas in Israel, they needed some more financial support. So Rabbi Balk was again going to go to America to go and fundraise. And he said, fine, he'll go. But on one condition, he cannot go to Chicago. He said he went and he was indirectly caused his son, this, this famous, you know, uh, Yerachmiel Wexler, his son, to go to, to Israel. And because of that, his son died. He said, I can't, I can't see this person in his eyes and look at him because I caused his son to go to Israel. And because of that, his son is not here anymore. So they said, fine. They made, planned out his itinerary and he wasn't going to go to Chicago. But God has a way of working things out. And when Rabbi Balk was in New York, he happened to meet this Mr. Wexler. And Mr. Wexler went and extended an enthusiastic greeting to him. And he says, Rabbi, he says, I was looking so forward to seeing you. And I was wondering, how come you're not coming to Chicago? And the rabbi, you know, was, he said, look, listen, I, I specifically asked not to go to Chicago. So he said, you know, Mr. Wexler said, why? Why not? And he said, you know, I indirectly caused, you know, you to lose your son. And I feel terrible. How could I face you? And Mr. Wexler was like, what? Lose my son? He's like, you gave me my son. 20 years ago, when he was born, his soul was destined to remain in the world for 20 years. This is what the father is telling the rabbi. 
The father goes and says his time, this was his time to go. And he would have left this the world regardless of where he was. But thanks to you, he spent six months studying in the Chevron Yeshiva. And I'm confident now that he has a shear in the, in the world to come. And many times, people blame themselves. They blame the corona, blame whatever it is that they do. But we have to realize when the time comes for a person to leave this world, the time comes and the person leaves, regardless of how it went and how it came and what was the, the methods that came about this. Now, there's something very interesting that the, the Rashi brings down in the beginning of Pashat Chukat, which speaks about the purification process with the uh, dealing with the impurities of death. And uh, over there... What, what the, what Rashi says over there, what the Chazal teach us is that a person has no permission to question when God takes someone from the, uh, from this world. Meaning that the, the decree comes from heaven. And because of the decree comes from heaven, we have no, we have no, we, we don't have no permission to go and question this. And the Ramban, Nachmanani goes on this Pasuk and he goes and he comments and he says, we're all God's children. He loves us more than a father could love his child. And even death itself is ultimately for the good. To the extent of this, that even the deceased themselves, there is, even for the person that passed away, there's no reason to be pained. Why? Because the main characteristic of a human being is his internal soul, is his nishama. And that soul continues to live in a spiritual life. And for this very reason that we have this, this, you know, the, there, there's parameters in the Jewish law on how we deal with mourning. There's Pasuk in Devarim, chapter 14, verse 1, that says, A person is not supposed to cut himself, he's not supposed to make himself any bold, boldness between your eyes for the dead. Meaning that in the, in the pagan rituals, they used to mourn excessively with self-mutilation when someone passed away. But this is not appropriate to do that in, in the, in the Jewish, in the Jewish, you know, understanding. Why? Because the person is not dead. The person moved from a, one location to another location. And yes, it's appropriate to cry. And yes, it's appropriate to mourn. It's like, uh, like a little child is going and being separated from his parents and they're going to a faraway journey. So yes, it's appropriate to cry. But ultimately, the separation at death is never, never an eternal separation. As we all know, the, the final, you know, what is the word I'm looking for? Coming together with all the, all your, the family and the friends, the people that are lost. That's where the resurrection of the dead, we will re, we rejoin together with those that we lost. The Rabbi Aaron of Bells goes and he lived through the Holocaust. And when he, when he was in the Holocaust, he lost his entire family. And he lost all his children. And he arrived at the, he arrived in, to, in Israel at February 3, 3rd, 1944, after losing everything. And that Shabbat was Shabbat Shira. And it's beginning, it's, how does it, it begins? As Yashir Moshe of Israel. Then the Jewish nation will go and sing and Moshe will sing. It speaks as then. And Rashi comments the name of the Medrash and also speaks about it in the Gemara that says that this is a hint that there's going to be from the Torah that there's resurrection of the dead. But says the, you know, the Rebbe goes and explains something like an amazing chidush. He goes, and you see, the, the Torah tells us that when the Jewish nation went and they left Egypt, they left chamushim. What is chamushim? The simple meaning of it is that they left armed. They were armed. But there's an additional meaning of chamushim. Chamushim is like chamesh, which means a fifth. Chamushim, a fifth. Meaning that only one fifth, only 20% of the Jewish nation left Egypt. 80% did not leave Egypt. They stayed there. They died during the plague of darkness. Now, when you think about this, that, think about something unbelievable. That means that every Jew had many relatives that perished before the exodus of Egypt. So it must have been very difficult 
to go, and what did the, after the Jewish people left Egypt, they sang a song, they sang Shira to God. How could they go and sing Shira? They just lost so many family members, so many friends, so many close relatives. How did the Jewish people go and sing? How? The Midrash, the Midrash goes and tells us they had tremendous amount of faith. They had tremendous, they were able to sing despite the suffering, despite the deaths that they had, they were able to go and sing praises to God. And you think about it, the first Passover in Egypt, on one side you had the Egyptians who were crying, you know, tremendously because of the pain of the deaths of their firstborn. But on the other side, you had the Jewish nation who were singing, they were happy in their homes. But you have both lost people, families in the house. But you have one of them that they couldn't, they couldn't deal. And another one, they were able to give praise and thanksgiving to God. Look at the difference between a Jew and a non-Jew. Now, even though you had the Jewish nation 80% of them passed away. Says the Bnei Yisachar that this is according to Kabbalah, this was very important and this was a tikkun for these souls. Because we know in Yeshaya, in Isaiah, chapter 27, verse 13, it says, It says, In that day when Mashiach comes, there's going to be a great shofar blowing. And what is it this Pasuk is telling us? This Pasuk is telling us in the, the resurrection of the dead, there will come a time where those that were cast away in the land of Egypt, those that passed away, they're going to come back. Says the B'nai Sassar, this was a tikkun for them. This was all, even though the people died during that time, even that was for the best. We don't always see that. We don't always understand that. But ultimately, we see that there is a bigger picture to life than we get to, that we're privy to see to. And, you know, even though we could go and we could understand this, people often go and ask, yeah, okay, so we understand this concept, but, but why do I have to go through these difficulties? Like, like I understand. So let the, let the big people, let them go through. Like, why do I have to go and deal with these sufferings and these, these difficulties? So I want to share with you a story and listen carefully to the story, because if we figure, if we understand this story, this is, we could answer how to deal with our problems and how to overcome our issues in such an amazing fashion that you will only grow from it. This is a story that Rabbi Lezer Parkov brings down. There was once a boy. He was, a, he was in seventh grade. His name is Yehuda. This Yehuda was very smart, very bright. His midot was unbelievable, great manners. Just like overall, like a star kid. Like really, really good. And then his father got sick. And within a short period of time, his father unfortunately passed away. And that's what like Yehuda, his, his pillar of support, his foundation, This is he just lost it. Now his mother, which was a fresh widow, you know, unable to come to terms with the death of her young, her young husband was, you know, her young husband was the breadwinner. He was one that supported the entire family. She didn't even know where to begin. The amount of loans they took out for the medical treatments and how she's going to go and now she's going to pay for the mortgage and how she's going to go and pay for the tuition and how she's going to put food on the table. There was so much overwhelming her. She didn't know what to do anymore that she just collapsed. She went and all she could do is open up a sefer and just sit and cry and cry and cry and pray to God. And when she finished with all this prayer, she had no energy, she had no ability, no strength to even go and dear, deal with, with her dear son, her Yehuda, seventh grader, who lost his father. So he was left dealing with this by himself. And oh, was it difficult. But of course, if things are not dealt with, it affects other areas of life. And his grades started to decline. He started to be more withdrawn. He started not to be as a star kid as he once was. The year passed, and he gets into 8th grade, and at, at the closing end of the 8th grade, the 
rabbis of the school now have to figure out where each boy is going to go for high school because it was the one in elementary. So they were figuring this guy, this boy Yehuda, he was such a bright kid, he has such a bright future, but his marks, his his ability to learn for the past year and a half was 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 terrible because you know he was dealing with something. But which school is going to go and accept him? So they went and the rabbi started making phone calls. His rabbi went and called one top yeshiva after another top yeshiva and says, please, can you? And he told them the whole story. And every yeshiva said, every school said, listen, we understand it, but they gave, everyone gave a different excuse. It's not going to work for us. We're not really, you know, accommodating to deal with this type of situation. You need to deal with a, with a school that's able to. Everyone gave a great, a great excuse. But so far, this boy had nowhere to go. So the rabbi was thinking and said, you know what? He says, what can I do? I'll have to send him to a second tier type of a school. But he, he said, he said, I'm going to give it one more chance. There's a new school opening up. Uh, let me try. Let me try to see what goes on with this school. If it works, good. If it does, if this school doesn't work, this is the last resort. I'll, we'll have to place him in a lower tier school. So he calls up this rabbi and he gives him the whole story. And he thought of, he thought he was wasting his time. Which new school is going to deal with this problem? New school, you want to build up a strong foundation, a strong, you know, reputation. You deal with, the, you start with the top of the, the top of the line. So this rabbi, who's starting this new school, said, you know what, let's, uh, let's discuss it like this. He says, I'll meet with this boy. If I see that this boy is willing to go and grow and willing to that I will be able to help him, I'll accept him. But if he's not willing, if he's still very stuck in a situation that he can't get out of it, then I can't help him. So the rabbi on the phone said, that's amazing. Okay, I'll call the boy. We'll be by your house tomorrow night. The next, uh, the next evening, the rabbi drops off this 8th grader, Yehuda, at this rabbi who's opening up a new school. And he brings him in, gives him some food to drink, some, some food to eat, something to drink. And he goes, and the rabbi starts telling him, and he says, listen, he says, I know your situation. I know, I know it's very difficult what you're going to. He says, I want you to tell me the whole story. Just tell me everything. But one thing that I need you to do is I want to help you. I, I want to do something for you, but you need to help me help you. You got to go and you got to work together with me. So the boy felt some sincerity in his eyes and he went and he told his entire story before this rabbi. And it started off with just tears and crying. And he speaks about his father and how his father learned with him and his father was his pillar of support and now he has nothing and how could he accomplish anything? He has nothing to, you know, that, to, to lean on in his house. And, uh, then he goes and he says, uh, he's, you know, he starts, he starts explaining of, of his, you know, his situation. The rabbi, after hearing his story, you know, felt also tears falling down his his uh, his cheeks, and he says, "Listen," he says, "You know, from what your rabbis are telling me, he says that you have so much potential, you have so much ability to go, and you're not even using a fraction of it." So he goes and he says, "I want to help you. I want to help you, but will you work with me? Will you work together with me?" So the Rabbi goes, and before he continues, he stops for a second, and he says like a little silent prayer to God, like, please help me say the right things right now. And he goes over to this boy, and he brings him to the window. And he goes over, and he shows shows this boy, there's a building that's being built right across the street. And uh, he shows this boy all the construction crew around, but the building is, there's a building still up there. There's a construction crew still all around there. And he goes, the rabbi goes to the boy, and he says, you see this building over here? And the boy says, yeah. He says, he sees a 20-story building. And the boy looks up and he says, yeah, I see, it's, it's, it's really tall. He says, the rabbi goes and says, there's a bunch of contractors that went. They purchased this building. And what they're going to do with this is they're going to tear this building down. And then they're going to build up a, a 80-story building. So the rabbi goes and he says, 
how come, if you think about it, why do they, look at this, it's a good building. It's, there's already 20 stories on it. Why do they need to go and destroy this 20 stories? Let them go and build another 60 stories above these 20 stories. And here, you got yourself a 80-story uh, building. So the rabbi goes and answers this question. He says, this 20-story building, if I go, and if we b- go put another 80 stories on it, it's going to collapse. The foundations are not, hel- are not strong enough to hold 80 stories. They're strong enough to hold 20 stories. So what happens is that these contractors have to go, they have to tear down this entire building, and then dig deep down, build strong foundations, and then they can build that 80-story skyscraper. So the rabbi goes over to him, and he says, you know, that the same thing happens with a person. When a person, the more you tear down the person, the deeper and deeper that you go, the higher and the sturdier that you can build this foundation. What God did to you is He sent you a burden. He sent you a difficulty. He ripped down your building. But why did He rip down your building? He, he's ripping it down because there's necessary preparation that you need to go to lay foundations for this tremendous building that God is going to build where you are. And if you go, and you use this to build your foundation, you'll, you'll be able to build a skyscraper. And then the rabbi goes and says, and how are you going to do this? He says, if you could do mitzvot, and if you do good deeds, and if you're going to go learn, and if you're going to follow what the Torah says, this is going, this is the bricks by bricks that's going to build the skyscraper. So Yehuda is sitting over there, this eighth grader is sitting over there, and he says, okay, fine. I understand. I understand what you're saying, rabbi. He says, uh, but why me? Why does my building have to be so tall? He says, why do I have to go through such difficulties in life? Why do I have to lose my father? He says, why can't somebody else have that big skyscraper? Why can't I be like anybody else? With tears falling down his eyes, he's asking the rabbi, but why me? A question that we often ask God, why me? And the rabbi goes and he says, you see that building? He says, why are the contractors going and purchasing this expensive building to tear it down to build? Why don't they just go to the outskirts, let them go somewhere else, and let them go to the desert, and there they could build a skyscraper that has 120 stories for the fraction of the price. Why are they doing it over here? He says, you know why? It's because in this area of land, there's potential. In this area of land, the, the amount that they're going to bring back in profits are going to be 10 times as if what they do it in the outskirts of the city. Heaven went, the rabbi goes, and gave you such a difficult test because it's a sign that only you have the unique abilities, the potential to build this spiritual building. Now again, we don't ask for tests. But when tests happen to us, we have to realize that God gave us this test because not only we could handle it, but we could go and overcome it and grow from it. And people in life, we go through so many difficulties. Why did I have to be through this family? Why did I have to have this panasa situation? Why did I have to marry this spouse? Why did I didn't get married? We're always asking these questions of why me, God? Look at everybody else, why me? And you don't want to know why you? Because you have that potential that no one else has. You have the ability to overcome so much and only you have that. And this is this, when this boy, Yehuda, heard how his rabbi was talking to him, he was a changed man. This little boy, Yehuda, became this rabbi's student. He was, known, he was his Talmud. But you, it was not because of all the Torah that he later learned in his yeshiva, in his school. That wasn't the reason. The reason why he became a student is because of that amazing evening that he had with his rabbi. This rabbi changed this kid's life. This kid later became a huge rabbi, a huge Talmud Chacham, a gadol in the Jewish nation. All from instead of breaking down from a test, he grew from the test. The ability of a person to succeed in dealing with all the difficulties that we didn't deal in our life, what does it depend on? It depends primarily on the way that he looks at them. If you look at it in a negative way, then you know what? You're not going to be able to deal with it. But if you look at it in the proper perspective, 
then they will be able to use the tools to help that person grow and develop and become a giant of what they can become. We see this when people left the Holocaust. People that left the Holocaust, when you look at it, the spiritual aspect of it, they went either one or two ways. They either went, they just threw religion away, or they went and they went so strong with religion, they came closer to God. And you see the same, you know, same person that went through the same concentration camp, that went through the same suffering, lost the same amount of people. How is it that one person just broke down and lost everything? Another person decided that, you know what, I'm going to build from this. I'm going to grow from this. And they went, and you don't only see this in spirituality, you see this in business also. People that went through the Holocaust and they went and they started, they had the power that other people didn't have because they went through so much in life. It's very interesting. There's some companies that like to hire people that were in the army. Why? Because the army puts you through difficulties. And if you're able to overcome that, you're going to be able to overcome difficulties that are thrown to you in the business world. There's so many things that happen in our lives that we don't realize that this gives us the ability to grow. And it doesn't have to be huge tests. Even the small things help us grow. Even the small things like getting stuck at home for months at, or God forbid, hopefully not months, but for weeks on end, not knowing what to do and not knowing how to deal with the family and not knowing how to deal with financial stuff and not knowing how to deal with so many things. There is so much opportunity here that you could go and you could break or you could go and you can grow. I want to go and from here venture on to a little bit of a different topic. And that is how come we have that the best people pass away? The greatest. Why Why does God take the best? There was a story that happened in France that in this particular French city, which is about an hour drive from Paris, there was no kosher mikveh. So when the Jewish families wanted to move to this town, they heard that there was no mikveh for the, you know, they decided that well, we can't move over here. So they went and they moved somewhere else. So the person by the name of Dove, that he decided that he's going to build a mikvah. And he was good with his hands. He knew how to build. He decided, he went and he started researching all the proper, you know, you know, halachot, all the proper laws and how to build a mikvah. And he, you know, raised the money that he was going to build a mikvah. He did everything from A to Z. And where was he going to build a mikvah? He was going to build it right in his backyard to cut down on costs. And he goes and he works diligently months and months of hard labor and eventually builds this beautiful mikvah in his own backyard. Now he had young children, so he always made sure that he would go and whoever was using it, whoever was, was dealing with it, they would always make sure to lock the, uh, you know, the mikvah. And nobody ever went without permission. And then one day something unthinkable happened, happened. He had a son by the name of Shlomo, which was only a year and a half old. And somehow someone forgot to lock the mikvah. And they went and this boy somehow got into the mikvah. And when the family found him, the family found him already floating in the water. And the family was broken. A year and a half old child, a baby. You know, it was taken like this. But even the question was greater. But how? why was he taken this way? The family gave everything to do this mitzvah to help other Jews. And the boy is going to die in the situation that they went to help other people? People had so many questions. This is a family that sacrificed so much for other people. So much. And this is their reward? And this is what they get? Dove went and he flew his son's tiny little coffin to Israel and he buried him on Har HaMenuchot. And then he traveled back to France where him and his wife and the rest of his family, which they, they were ten boys, now there were only nine boys left. They went and they sat Shiva. A short while after that, after his return from Israel, he, Dove had a dream. And in this dream, he saw an old man with a long white beard who spoke to him and introduced himself. He says um, he is one of the Baalei Hatosfos. He's one of the early commentators on the, of the Talmud. And he, his life was killed al Kedush Hashem. He died sanctifying God's name. 
and Dove was having this dream. He was so scared of this dream. It was so vivid, so real. Everything was so like legit. He got so scared, he jumped up out of bed and he woke up with a sweat. And he was like, oh, I can't believe, you know, like he realized it was just a dream. So he goes, he falls back, he calms down, he falls back asleep and the man returns to him. And the man says, listen, you don't have anything to be afraid. He says, the only reason why I came to you is I wanted to explain to you the events that happened in the recent days. He goes on, this old man, and the long white beard, says, I was killed many, many years ago. And I went and I descended up to heaven. And I was brought there to the highest levels. But since, he goes, this old man, and I died. He says he died. The highest form of death, he was able to reach such a high level, but there was another level that he couldn't get up to anymore. Why? Because he didn't receive a the, the tahara. The tahara is a, a proper purification process that after a person dies, they go through this process. Um, and he goes and he says, because, you know, he was killed and his, he was murdered and his body was covered in, in blood, as well as this is, was during the time of the Crusades. So a regular tahara could not be performed. So they, they couldn't do a regular tahara. So the court goes and tells him, he says, listen, you're going to get to this level, but if you want to get any higher, you have to come back to this world and get a final immersion in a kosher mikvah. And this old man goes over to this father, Dove, and he says, God knew the sacrifice that you did, that you invested to build this mikvah in your backyard. And that's what makes it so special. And that's why he chose you to be the parents of Shlomo. Because I am that Shlomo. And I came there what to do with my last final purification. And then he goes and he says, so that you will know that this dream is true, I will give you a sign. At the end of this year, you will be blessed with a daughter. And sure enough, less than one year later, Dove and Esther were blessed with a baby girl. And the story was told, the story is written in many, many sources. And the story in many, many books. The story was retold by somebody who saw the mikvah and met that little girl. So we go and we look at life and we look at the tragedies that we deal with life. We have to realize we don't know. We don't know the full picture. We don't know what's going on, even in a partial picture. And I want to share with you something so amazing, so so unbelievable, but you're going to have to stick with me with this. This is something from Rab Shimshon Pincus. And Rab Shimshon Pincus goes and says something unbelievable. He says, when a tragedy takes place, that means that God's trait of judgment is expressing in the world. And the proper response for us is to arouse us up to do tshuva. And if Hashem was so angry with us that He didn't want anything to do with us, then you know what? He wouldn't relate to us. But if He goes and He takes a righteous person from us, then He surely desires something from us. And we see over here that God is taking away precious, pure Jews. That means that clearly He has something that He wants from us. And we have to stop for a second and think, what does God want from us? There's a Pasuk in Tehillim, chapter 79, verse 1 that speaks about the, the defilement of the, of the Holy Temple. But how does it start? It starts, Mizmol Asaf, a song to Asaf. The Chazal in Echa Rabbah goes and questions, what? why are we singing a song? We're dealing with the destruction of the Temple. We're dealing with the defilement of the Temple. And we're saying this is a song to God? We should say that this is a mourning. This is something that we should cry. Why is this a song? So this can be compared to a king who built a chupa for his son. He went and he decorated it and he built it and then the son went off on its evil ways. And the king, what did the king do? The king immediately took this structure, this edifice that he built for the son and he went and he destroyed it. He tore the curtains down. He destroyed everything that he built. Meanwhile, there was a servant nearby that saw all this. He started playing the, you know, a flute and started singing a song. And they went over to him and says, now you're singing a song? 
He says the king just went and destroyed. Why is this something that you're so happy about? Why is this now that you're singing? And this servant goes and says, but if you think about it, he says the king was very angry with his son. It's better that he takes out his anger on the structure of that's just building material, as opposed of taking out his anger on his son. Says Chazal tell us, Mizmol Asaf, why is this a song? Because God destroyed the temple. Why did God destroy the temple? Because the Jewish people were doing something that they shouldn't have done. God got angry at, so to speak, at the Jewish people. So instead of going and pouring his wrath on the Jewish people, God went and he poured his wrath upon sticks and stones. But now I ask Rabshim Shem is a very important question. God has gets angry. God, if somebody gets angry, right, they take a mug and they throw it against the wall that calms them down and for whatever, you know, obscure reason they go and they calm down. But we're talking about God over here. God needs to get angry and then God gets calmed down when he destroys something. How do we understand this? Such an amazing concept is going to blow your mind. Rabbi Shimshim Pikas goes and says like this. He says that every being is composed of two factors. You have the body and then you have the soul. The soul is what gives life to the body. Now, every soul is connected to the body. A human body has a human soul. An animal body has an animal soul. A human body walks standing up, fits a soul, which also stands up. An animal body walks on all four with its head towards the ground because that's fitting for the soul, which also comes from the earth. Different levels of soul. We're not going to get into the Kabbalistic aspect of it right now. But what happens, the Kabbalah teaches us, that if the body and the soul do not match, how could that be? One of two reasons. Either a human has an animal soul or an animal has a human soul. So if a, a human has an animal soul, so then this human being is going to be very, it's going to be very physical, very, very, you know, like in a gross aspect, very, very physical and very crude. If, says Rav because there's something even worse than that, that an animal has a human soul. But what happens to a human soul that is connected to an animal body? Now listen to this, it's a little bit Kabbalistic, but bear with me. According to the Torah sources, the soul is termed light, like an O. A body is a receptacle that holds that light. But they need to match each other. If the receptacle and the body match each other, then they will function at full capacity. And it remains intact. However, if the receptacle, which is the body, receives more lights, more light than it could handle, than it's built for, then it's not going to be able to hold it and it's going to break. And we see there's something very interesting in Pirkei Avot. In Pirkei Avot, there's something very interesting that we speak about that says that somebody who has deeds, his ma'asim, his actions, are greater than his wisdom, than his learning, then his wisdom remains intact. Meaning that your deeds should be higher than your level of wisdom. But if somebody goes and his wisdom is greater than his deeds, meaning he has a lot of wisdom, but his actions, his level does not compare to that. He doesn't, his wisdom is higher, his deeds are not that great. His deeds are lower. Then his wisdom is not going to remain intact. What is this referring to over here? The wisdom is light. The deeds are a person's physical action. So when a person has wisdom that's greater than his deeds, then he w- the receptacle, meaning the light, is greater than the receptacle, then the result, it will break. Let me explain it to you like this. Amazing clarity. Reb Chaim Brisker goes and, I, and he explains this as follows. Let's say a person has five portion of good deeds and three portions of wisdom. Meaning that the good deeds should be higher than the wisdom. And the good deeds are higher than the wisdom. So his wisdom is going to remain intact. It's going to, it's, he's going to, he will survive in that aspect. But let's say you have another person that has 10 aspects of good deeds and 20 aspects of wisdom. Meaning that his good deeds are 10, which is higher than the first one, which is only 5, but his wisdom is higher to 20. So you're going to ask you a question. Who is greater? Is it the person who has more wisdom? Because he has 10 aspects of wisdom and the other person only has 3. Or, is it the other way around? Says the Briskarov, he says the second person 
is, is, is inferior to the first person. Why? Because the second person has greater wisdom. With greater wisdom has comes a greater obligation. And if you fail that obligation, so you fall many times greater than the other person. And we see over this, says Rabbi Shem in the modern world, that we see over here that the wisdom is greater than the deeds is taken to extreme over here. You see over here, there's the, the, at this day and age, the connection between what a person knows and who he is, is so far apart, it's crazy. We have over here people that could excel in knowledge. It could be a professor, an engineer, an inventor, a doctor, a lawyer. It could be on high intellectual levels. Could figure out how to reach the moon, how to fly, how to, unbelievable stuff. Yet the basic nature remains despicable. The Zohar goes and says that in the sixth millennium, there is going to be great wisdom, great gates of wisdom that's going to open up from heaven and it's going to be coming down. Now, we see over here with these brilliant inventions that we have. Anything from the cell phone, anything to nanotechnology, to medicine, to the ability of flying, to get of, of satellites, unbelievable te- technology we have right now. There's a lot of wisdom. There's so many lights in the world. But what about the receptacles? What about the receptacles? That people also go up with all this extra wisdom. That people go higher and higher in their level. Now they're understanding all this wisdom. Are they going to reach higher levels? Unfortunately, we see it the other way around. Rabbi Shimpikas tells, tells of a story when he went to, he came to visit a, a city in America. He didn't say which one, but I think we could all figure out which one it is. And he saw, he was amazed by the beauty, the skyscrapers. Everything was of the highest, the best technology. He says it's unbelievable what they built over here. It's so amazing. But then you look at the creatures that are walking around in the street, it says the wisdom and the receptacles, the light and the receptacles, they're not fitting. The technology, the advancement is so high, but we're out of sync with the low and depraved state of the people, unfortunately. What happens when you have wisdom and deeds out of sync? That results in a breakage. Now let's explain this in the, in the factor of the Bet HaMikdash. In the time of the Bet HaMikdash, there was tremendous amount of light. There was tremendous amount of wisdom. There was tremendous amount of Kiddushah. But what happened was the Jewish people that lived during those times were not fitting to contain these lights. They damaged their receptacles. They damaged their bodies. They damaged the ability to hold this light through evil deeds. And we know the sins of, of you know, Gilead, forbidden relations, idolatry, bloodshed, and even baseless hatred, sinat chinam, they, they damaged the receptacle. So what happened was the light couldn't fit anymore. It didn't match. And what happens if they didn't match? The receptacles cannot hold the great light. So they nearly broke. They nearly broke. Who's the receptacles? Where are the receptacles? We nearly broke. So in other words, the Jewish people almost perished, God forbid. And what did God do in His great mercy? Instead of annihilating the Jewish people, He diminished the light. He lessened the light. He destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. Because now that there's no Bet HaMikdash, there's lower lights. If there's lower lights, then all of a sudden, the level that we were are, we were able to, to, to survive. And this is why you have something very interesting. When It's very common when people are eulogizing someone. They mention a verse from Sheol Sherim. It's chapter 6, verse 2. It's Dodi Yarad Leganot. Speaking about God, Dodi God. He went down to, the, to his garden. And what did he do? He went to gather roses. What's the roses? He went to gather the righteous people. Meaning that God went and He took away the righteous people among the, among the, among the Jewish nation. And this is not just a mashal. This is really how it happens. God really takes away the best from among us. Why? To save the Jewish people. There are exceedingly righteous people among us. There's exceedingly tzaddikim. Amazing. But what happens is, if there's such a high level of light, there's a demand so much for the people. If we have such high-level righteous people, then we have to have that ability to hold that light, to hold that wisdom. The death of Tzadikim, explains Rabshim Shem Pinkus, is like the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. 
What God is doing is God is diminishing the light to save the receptacles. We hear always of people that are going and are passing away and it's a kapara for the entire nation. We know we hear that, but here's how you understand it. So amazing, so beautiful how Rabbi Shimshon Pinkus goes and explains it. And Rabbi Shimshon Pinkus goes on and says, you know, you have, you know, the people, they want to have leaders like who? They want to deal with rabbis of the highest level. They want to be, they want to have who's their rabbi? The biggest rabbi of the generation. They want to be in the top of the top, but yet they don't live their lives that should be appropriate to have that type of rabbi. We want the Chafetz Chaim to be our rabbi, but at the same point in time, we live our lives the way that we live our lives. Says Rabbi Shimshon Pinkus, you know what would happen if Chafetz Chaim would live in our generation? One of two things. Either he will elevate us all, or he will destroy us all. Because there's a level of light that comes in, and something has got to give when the receptacles is not fitting the light. Either the receptacles expand and grow and get closer to God to fill that light, or the light goes and diminishes to be able to fit into the receptacles. What we need to work on today and during these days is we need to make our deeds, our receptacles fitting to be a character of a Jew. And we look at it in our generation, you know, this unbelievable amount of Torah learning. And this is what Rabbi Shimshon Pinka says. He says, there's a lot of yeshivas and there's a lot of learning Baruch Hashem for Torah in any time and Baruch Hashem for so many organizations. So unbelievable of what they do and how they spread Torah. But the question, says Rabbi Shimshon Pinka, that we have to ask, is our deeds equal to our levels of wisdom? Is our light equal to our receptacles? How do we live our life? How do we eat? How do we pray to God? How do we recite blessings? You know, the, you have so many people that are so, they know so much Torah, but how do they act at home? Do they scream at their family members? Do they abuse the family members? Do they get angry at home? What about business? Are they honest in business? What about dress? Do they dress like a religious person? They know all the knowledge. They know what they need to do, but do they act like that? Do they keep Shabbat the way that it's supposed to? Do they guard their eyes the way that it's supposed to? What we need to do is we need to concentrate and think, how are we going to go and expand our receptacles? And what happens if we expand our receptacles? Then God could send us some more light. But I'll tell you something amazing, something fascinating. That it could actually go and prolong your life. There was once a secular Jewish boy that was in the Israeli army. And once he finished the army, he was, you know, he was very, very intelligent. You know, he had success for his future. And after he finished the army, you know, he was figuring out what to do. And he felt unsettled. He felt, you know, sort of a lack of fulfillment in his life. And somehow, from a secular family, secular life, he ended up in Bnei Brak, in Yeshiva Nesivos Oilam. He ended up learning in this yeshiva. And he made tremendous strides in his learning. Within a short period of time, he grew to such, he focused so much, he worked so hard in his learning, that he went from a secular boy to one of the highest boys in the yeshiva, in the learning-wise. And then suddenly, out of the blue, he fell ill. He had a cancerous growth. And unfortunately, a few months later, he passed away. And there was a rabbi that was going to go, and it was going to give a eulogy, or give a hesped by his funeral. And this rabbi's name was Rabbi Yechizkiyahu Meshavsky. Um, and he went and he decided how is he going to speak to a family that's secular? They lost a boy. Like, what is he going to, what is he going to tell them? He decided he's going to go and, and consult with Reb Chaim Kanievsky. And he goes to Reb Chaim Kanievsky and the Reb Chaim Kanievsky goes and instructs him as follows. I'm going to quote to you what he, what Reb Chaim Kanievsky said. Reb Chaim Kanievsky goes and says, this boy was surely destined to die at a younger age, but God saw deep inside his heart, that he had a tiny seedling, a tiny aspect of tshuva that were beginning to blossom inside, he therefore bestowed upon him an additional years of life 
as a gift. And in this period of time, this boy became a Baal Tshuva, became a Talmid Chacham, and he merited to die as a Ben Torah after his soul was purified with sufferings of Yisurim that he went through. Rabbi Chaim Kenietzky goes and finishes, this is exactly what you should say at the Leviah. Now, you know, Rabbi Mishkovsky is going and be like, okay, fine, like, I believe the rabbi, of course. You know, the rabbi, the rabbi is saying, I believe. But how am I going to go and say this in a secular family? That, that, you know, it's unbelievable. But he was thinking, he says, you know what? The gadol of the generation, the, high, the biggest rabbi told me to say this, I'm going to say this. He gets up and he repeats exactly what the rabbi told him to say at the funeral. And after he finished speaking, after the, you know, the funeral started dispersing, another rabbi, which was present, at this funeral, his name is Rabbi Noah Hertz, he grabbed, the, you know, his rabbi, rabbi, rabbi Mishkovsky's arm, and he says, come, let me bring you to the father, let me introduce you to the father. And he's like, ah, no, I, I, not. and before you know it, he's in front of the father. And the father was so overwhelmed with emotions at that time. And, he, you know, the rabbi, Rabbi Mishkovsky thought, who knows what he's going to throw at me right now, saying that his son was supposed to die earlier, and all that. The rabbi, the secular father, goes over to him, and he says words that blew him away. He says, you don't know how right you are. He goes, and he started waving his finger at the rabbi. He said, several years ago, my son was in the army, and he was assigned to enter Lebanon. And he was assigned to enter in a certain tank with other soldiers. And then suddenly, the commander approached him and started screaming at him, who told you to get into this, into this tank? You're not supposed to be here, you're supposed to be in a different tank. And he pulled him out of this tank, and he put him out to a different tank for no reason. That was his group, that was his tank. He doesn't know why he did it. But he had to follow his superior officer, and he went outside. He said, as soon as that tank started its journey, there was a shell that exploded in it, and everybody in that tank died. And the, and the father, with tears in his eyes, you know, is saying, he's like, you're 100% correct. There's so many hidden things that we don't know. But what caused, says Rochaim Kanevsky, what caused this prolong of life, the ability to go and say, you know what, I'm going to change myself. We're living in a situation right now that's very difficult, and everybody's very scared of what will be. You want a school, huh? You want something that will what can prolong your life? Take upon yourself something. Do tshuva. He had what 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 prolonged this life? Just a thought process of tshuva. Rav Chaim Kenevsky said, gave this gift of gave this boy a gift of additional years. There was a uh, a nineteen year old girl who uh, took unfortunately ill, and three months three and a half months later she passed away. And the family, you know, dealing with, with the loss of such a young person, the family had a very hard time dealing with it. And the sister had a dream. And, uh, you know, the family was like, oh, okay, fine, dreams. They weren't into dreams, but the dreams was like so legit. They went and they decided they're going to ask her. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.